are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. Hello, Bethel Atlanta. We are missing your faces this morning, uh, but we are just so happy to be together in your living room or while you're driving in your car. Uh, wherever you are. So we're going to look at a passage uh, together for a moment today. If you just want to open up to John chapter 2, I've just been meditating on this passage um, for the last couple months and just reading it slowly uh, and just trying to digest it. And so we're just going to kind of work through it together today and see how far we get and just spend some time in the scriptures together. So in John chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 12. And it says, after this, Jesus, his mother and brothers and his disciples went to Capernaum and stayed there for a few days. But the time was close for the Jewish Passover to begin. So Jesus walked to Jerusalem. As he went into the temple courtyard, he noticed it was filled with merchants selling oxen, lambs, and doves for exorbitant prices, while others were overcharging as they exchanged currency behind their counters. So Jesus found some rope and made it into a whip. Then he drove out every one of them and their animals from the courtyard of the temple. And he kicked over their tables filled with money, scattering it everywhere. And he shouted at the merchants. So let's just uh, pause here for a second. And this is just a wild story. And we're seeing Jesus... um, come into the tape, uh, temple, and he, he is obviously not happy with what he is seeing. And, you know, when we just kind of look at the nature of Jesus that's coming out in this passage, um, we have to remember that everything Jesus did, he did as perfect love. That everything we see, um, Jesus, how he moved about the earth, every interaction he had with any human being, he was manifesting the standard of perfect love. Because the Bible teaches us God is love. So love um, is not a feeling we're striving to attain. Love is not It can't be found in studying culture and looking at people. Love is a person. Love is defined by God. God is the only source of perfect love. And so when we're watching Jesus actually pause and take time to make a whip and... (laughs) kick over tables and shout at people, we're watching a heart motive of perfect love. And he, everything he did was full, the Bible says, of grace 
and truth. So Jesus embodied perfect grace and perfect truth. So in this passage, we're looking at the nature of Jesus that does not change. (laughs) And, um, you know, perfect love responded this way in the temple. Perfect grace responded this way in the temple. Perfect truth. Truth uh, responded this way in the temple. And, you know, he refused to see this injustice that was happening in the temple and just look away because love wouldn't do that. Grace wouldn't do that. Truth wouldn't do that. And so when, when we're looking at becoming the embodiment of love, we're looking at becoming one with the nature of Jesus. And Jesus is our standard of of emotional health. Jesus is the most emotionally healthy human being that has ever walked the earth. And what he did uh, with his anger in in this experience he had in the temple is a lesson for us all in what it looks like to be a healthy human being on the earth. And, you know, uh, he didn't lose connection to his heart motive of manifesting the Father uh, when he bumped into an injustice that made him angry. And true emotional health means there, there isn't an emotion we can't feel and process without losing our connection to the Father, without remaining in perfect love. And, you know, John 14, Jesus says, uh, you know, the disciples are asking him, show us the Father. And Jesus responds, have I been with you this long and you haven't seen the Father? You have to know that the Father is living in me and I am living in the Father. And he says, even my words are not my own, but it's the Father speaking through me. And even the miracles I do, the Father is doing the miracles through me. And so in this moment of intense emotion, enough emotion to kick over tables and shout, was moving through his body he was staying connected to the Father. He was only saying what the Father was saying and doing what the Father was doing. And, you know, he, he was in perfect ownership of his own emotional experience. And, you know, one of my favorite definitions of codependence that I just find so helpful is codependence is a loss of identity, that we lose touch with being the owner of our own feelings, of our own emotions, of our own desires, of our own thoughts. And uh, so much of emotional immaturity is when we get stuck in our capacity to navigate certain emotions. And uh, anger can be one of those emotions that we get stuck in how to navigate it powerfully as the owner of our anger. And in this passage, Jesus is showing us what it looks like to be the owner of every emotion. And, you know, 
He could have dumped his emotions on the people around, around him and tried to make them the owner of his anger. Uh, he could have stuffed his emotion. He could have um, left and just began to ruminate over the experience and allowed it to um, just relive it over and over. He, he could have gathered his disciples and just uh, dumped on them how upset he was that all of this happened. And, you know, that venting is a, a, can be a healthy way to process emotions when the intent is to be the owner of this emotion. And the intent is not to dump it on someone else, but the intent is to help me process this. Help me own this emotion so I can learn to navigate it in a healthy way versus um, let me dump this on you so I can just get out of the feeling, so I can get out of the emotion. And what Jesus is modeling for us is we are 100% the owner of every feeling in our heart. (laughs) We are 100% the owner of every emotion that floods through our body. And learning to navigate our emotions in healthy, powerful ways is a part of our journey into Christ-likeness. And um, Jesus did not react to what he was seeing. He responded with intention. He responded, we know, in the trueness of his character from a motive of love, from a motive of benefiting everyone around him. And he wasn't trying to uh, prove a point. He wasn't trying to control or manipulate. Um, he is perfect love. And, you know, when he was correcting what was happening in the temple, he was saying, I love you. I love you too much to leave you like this. And he was saying, I believe in you. I believe in your capacity to make a course direction shift and stop living below your nature and come up higher, come up to a higher place of seeing and living and knowing. And, you know, when he shouted, he said, get these things out of here, that people were um, charging exorbitant prices. They, they were abusing and using people to benefit themselves in the name of the temple. And he, he starts shouting, get it all out of here. Don't you dare make my father's house into a center for merchandise. And, you know, that's when his disciples remembered the scripture I am consumed with a fiery passion to keep your house pure. And Jesus was realigning the purpose of the temple. That the purpose of the temple wasn't about profit. It wasn't about gain. It wasn't about the tax. The purpose of the temple was about the presence. It was about the living, breathing presence of God. And when we look through Old Testament history that got us to this point 
of Jesus um, cleaning out the temple and restoring the standard of purity, you know, we can see uh, heroes like David in in the Davidic covenant. Um, David is basically telling God, I live in this big, gorgeous house, and you live in a tent. How could this be? I want to build you a house. And, and God responds, well, I want to build you a house. And this desire for a temple welled up in the heart of a man who was after God's heart. And the whole, the whole dream of a dwelling place for God came from a love for God. And, you know, David spent the end of his life making sure his son had everything necessary to build the temple. He gathered all the wood that was needed, everything in piles, so that when it was time for Solomon uh, to build the temple, he would have everything that he needed. And it was in David's heart, there was such a purity of passion for the presence of God that it wasn't about if he built it or didn't build it. It was about that it would get built. And, you know, Solomon spent, uh, like in modern times, it, it was an outrageous number that on this temple. And it, he spared no expense out of a passion for the presence, out of a love for the presence of God. And so much so that the queen of Sheba came and saw everything that Solomon had built. And there was so much presence resting on it that she was in awe of the staircase. She was in awe of the way the servers dressed, that she was in awe because the presence was there. And, you know, David would say things in the Psalms like, there's only one thing I'm asking for. There's one thing I'm desiring, that I could dwell in the house of the Lord, that I could dwell in the temple where the presence is all the days of my life. And I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God, a doorkeeper in the temple, than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. And some of our most treasured Old Testament scriptures are coming from men and women who had a heart for presence that was beyond, before their time. And, and they would peek in to what Jesus made available for us and they would crave and long for what we live in freely. Access to the presence of God 24 hours a day, seven days a week to live in oneness. And Jesus came to restore that passion for presence. He came to be Emmanuel, God with us. He came to give us access to this presence. And uh, what he was addressing in turning over tables and making a whip was you've lost sight of the point of this temple. Nothing here, nothing about the presence is for sale. The presence um, is what Jesus came. I, Isaiah said, oh, everyone who's thirsty, come and take a drink. 
And Jesus came fulfilling every prophecy. I will give you water, the water of my presence that will cause you to never thirst again. And, you know, when we lose sight of the greatest joy in the gospel is not on what's on the exterior of our life, but what's on the interior of our life where God is. Um, we start putting things up for sale that have, they could never be bought. And, you know, uh, Jesus addressed this in the parable of the, the prodigal son. The father had two sons. And remember, um, one of the sons asked for his inheritance early and went and just acted foolishly with all of the money. And he came back um, in a place of complete sorrow and grief over uh, the shame in his choices. And, um, you know, remember the father ran out to the boy and threw his own robe on his back, gave him a ring, uh, said, called in the whole town and uh, celebrated with the fattest calf uh, because his son was home. And remember, the elder brother left the party and was so upset out in the field because of what the brother received and he did not. And, you know, the main thing I want to address in that parable this morning is that they lost sight of the main event, that in the father's house, the most precious possession, the most sacred of all the gifts that will never be topped is the father. The greatest gift in the father's house is the father. And when when the elder brother was being honest with the father about his sadness that he's never had a party, he's never been treated the way the father was treating his younger brother. Jesus says the father looked at him and said, you've always been with me and everything that's mine is yours. And Jesus in story after story, was realigning the people of God with the presence of God. That, you know, when we lose sight of cherishing the presence as the greatest gift in our lives, uh, we are tempted to become entitled to a ring and a robe and very specific situations in our life have to look like this for me to know I'm favored by God. It has to turn out like this for me to know I'm loved by God. When really Ephesians says, you have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Because what have you been given? What have you been given without reservation? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is saying the temple is about not about any of, the, any of these things you're making it about. The temple is about presence. It's about the Father. And 
uh, he, it goes on to say in verse 18, but the Jewish religious leaders challenged Jesus. What authorization do you have to do this sort of thing? If God gave you this kind of authority, what supernatural sign will you show us to prove it? And this is, this is the pressure religion will always put on the people of God. Prove it. Prove it. This, this was in the wilderness when Jesus was tempted. This was what the devil uh, turned turn these loaves into bread. Prove it. If, 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 if you're the son of God, prove it. And Jesus answered, after you've destroyed this temple, I will raise it up again in three days. And he doesn't even engage in the argument. And when we, when we start to change the course of our life, to engage in an argument with a religious spirit, to prove our spirituality, to prove our identity, to prove our authority. Um, we've already lost because nothing about our gifting, nothing about our talent, nothing about who we are will ever be the source of our confidence in who we are to God. The blood of Jesus alone is what defines our worth and our value. And Jesus is saying the resurrection is the proof. And the Jewish leaders sneered, it says in verse 20. This temple took 46 years to build. And you mean to tell us that you will raise it up in three days? But they didn't understand that Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. But the disciples remembered his prophecy after Jesus rose from the dead and believed both the scripture and what Jesus had said. And so what Jesus is saying is, I am the temple. My body is the temple. And he, he is, you know, making this huge shift that he will be the final sacrifice to gain access to the presence of God. He is saying, I am the dwelling place of the Father. And, you know, the most astonishing thing about the gospel is that in John 14 too, uh, lots of references back to John 14. It's a good one just to meditate on for a while. Um, he says, it's actually better that I go because in his going, he was able to win for us access to the presence of God in the same measure that he lived in it on the earth. So he actually handed us the baton and called us his body on the earth. And now we are his temple. We are the place where God dwells. And, you know, when you look at the way Jesus responded to the injustice happening to the temple, we have to put ourselves in the story as the temple. We are the temple. And what angers just Jesus is any injustice 
that puts who you are up for sale. Because look at this. Look at this verse in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 19. Have you forgotten that your body is now the sacred temple of the Spirit who lives in you? You don't belong to yourself any longer. For the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, lives inside your sanctuary. You were God's expensive purchase, paid for with tears of blood. So by all means, then use your body to bring glory to God. And, you know, he's saying, you are no longer for sale. Your worth is no longer up for negotiation. <laughs> that your, your performance will no longer determine your value. People's opinion of you uh, no longer measures your place of significance on the earth. And, you know, the beauty in what Jesus bought for us is we no longer have to work and strive to be worthy of his presence. That the greatest place of our identity rests in what Jesus won for us to be the dwelling place of God. And so... Uh, this is where the fear of man is annihilated. This is where courage begins to bubble up in our heart that we, we no longer have to look at our bank account. We no longer have to look at what's happening on the exterior of our life to find out who we are and how our worth is measured. That, you know, First Peter says, we, we never doubt the worthiness of Jesus. And we, his people, have, have inherited as a gift his worthiness. And so nothing on the exterior is what causes the temple that is you to be valuable. It is the presence of the Father, the presence of Jesus, the presence of the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. And, you know, John 14, 23, Jesus says, my father will love you so deeply that we will come to you and make you our dwelling place. Ah, it's one of my most cherished verses. It's hanging in my living room. And you are the dwelling place of God on the earth. And so when the earth is groaning, Romans 8 says, for the sons and daughters to arise on the earth, they're groaning to see the Father because the Father lives inside of sons and daughters. And what would your life look like today if you saw Jesus defending your worth, defending, flipping over tables, shouting at any religious spirit that would want to violate where your identity comes from, 
that nothing about your worth will ever again be up for negotiation, be up for sale, because you've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. And what would your life look like today? How brave would you be? How courageous would you be if no matter how you felt, no matter uh, what you thought, no, no matter what was happening on the exterior of your life, no matter what others thought of you, that nothing and no one in all of human history could ever separate you from this perfect love, from, from this perfect God, perfect worth. And, you know, the greatest lie that could devastate the goodness of the gospel gushing through our lives is that we could ever be disconnected from the presence of the Father. The devourer doesn't care much about what we do with our lives on the earth. What he cares about is that we would live unaware that we were chosen to be the dwelling place of God, to be the habitation of the Father, to be the Father's house on the earth. That the only proof that we would have of who we are living from heaven to the earth is the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the resurrection power that gave Jesus back his life after three days lives in me and lives in you. And nothing will ever again give us more access to this presence. What we grow in, in is our awareness of who is with us always, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that nothing is impossible, that no situation in front of us will ever be bigger than the God who's on the inside of us. And how would our confidence be affected if what overwhelmed us was this awareness that no matter how I feel, there's a God inside of me that's bigger than me. No matter what obstacle is in front of me, there is a God living and breathing on the inside of me who towers over every obstacle, who triumphs over every enemy. And so I just want to remind us this morning that nothing about who you are will ever again be up for negotiation. You've been bought with a price. You're the dwelling place of God. Right where you are, right now, today. Nothing left to prove, nothing left to earn. Because you, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit with the precious blood of Jesus. So we just thank you this morning, Jesus. And we just pause this morning to celebrate who you are in us, who you are to us, who you are through us. 
And we just thank you that we are right on time for this hour of history, that everything that's needed on the earth to soothe a groaning world, you've put on the inside of us the God who sees, the God who cares, the God who comforts. We love you, Jesus. We just refresh ourselves again that the greatest thing about living in the Father's house, living in oneness with you, it's not the ring, it's not the robe, it's not the gifts, it's not the, the talents, it's your presence. It's this intimacy with you. It's living as one with you. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Bless you guys today. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.